Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf, or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just him. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Here ends the Old Testament reading. Well, we've got... Uh, quite a big issue this morning. We're starting a series of studies entitled A Biblical View on Big Issues. And we've got one of the, today's biggest set of issues, migration and uh, immigration. And uh, these are very serious issues because national values as, uh, are often at stake as well as personal lives, as we were hearing from Claire uh, this morning with her, her experience last year in Lesbos. So to help our thinking, I've just got three headings and you, they're on the back of your service sheet. Do you want to jot uh, down any notes? Uh, and the first is the biblical background. Secondly, current problems. And thirdly, the challenge. Well, first, the biblical background. The Bible actually introduces you straight away uh, to migration in the early chapters of Genesis uh, which you need to keep in mind. And uh, it uh, refers to three types. 
First, migration as the blessing of God and essential for human existence. You've got that, uh, these are well-known verses, um, uh, Genesis verse 28. Verse 27 has just said, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. But then in verse 28 we read, and God blessed them, the male and female, then comes the command and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the very first command for human beings is to be procreators on behalf of Almighty God in populating this planet, be fruitful and multiply. And it's through migration they are to fill the earth and create nations. So important was that command that it was repeated for Noah after the fall of Adam and Eve and after the destruction of the flood. So we read in Genesis 9, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then as you read on, you read of the establishment of nations. You read in Genesis 9, verse 19, after a reference to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Uh, These three were the sons of Ner, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Or if you see in your margins in the ESV, uh, it says, from these the whole earth was populated. And then again, chapter 10, verse 32 tells you, from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So in the providential working of God, human life was secured and uh, nations were birthed. Uh, And this was as people obeyed God's command to be fruitful and multiply, and then uh, as they filled the earth through migration. Secondly, there is migration not as the blessing of God, but as uh, the judgment of God. Because we're then told in chapter 11 of Genesis about the Tower of Babel. Um, You know, many of you I know know this, but uh, if you don't, verse 2, chapter 11 says, As the people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of China and settled there. Verse 4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have, have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they, will, they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. So the the desire for godless self-aggrandizement led to enforced dispersal or migration uh, through the judgment of God. And then thirdly, there is migration, of course, as essential for salvation history. In the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 12, you read of how God, through the call of Abraham and his migration, birthed a new nation, the nation of Israel, and for universal salvation. Israel was to be the light to all the other nations through its prophets and, of course, supremely through the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He was born into this nation literally to save the world from the mess it had got into uh, and still gets into through disobeying God. So migration can be good, and uh, result in God's purpose of establishing human societies that live together for their well-being in diverse nations. But it also can be the result of God's judgment on sin. And most important of all, it has been essential for the salvation of the world. Well, that brings us to 
problems, and current problems in particular. And these focus on yet another three uh, classifications of migration. First, the age-old reality and problem of economic migration. In the UK and developed countries, generally this is where there is a migration from the country to the towns in search of work, uh, but also for the so-called good life. And internationally, this is from poorer countries to richer countries. But then secondly, and often involving economic migration, is the problem uh, caused by and of replacement migration. That's a new category. As this millennium dawned uh, on the 17th of March 2000, the United Nations published a report on the problem of or the need for what it called replacement migration. Uh, this report came from the UN Population Division. Let me quote from its accompanying press statement. The Population Division of the Department of Economic and Social Affairs, DESA, DESA, has released a new report titled Replacement Migration, Is It a Solution to Declining and Aging Populations? Replacement migration, it said, refers to the international migration that a country would need to prevent population decline and population aging resulting from low fertility and mortality rates. And it goes on, United Nations projections indicate that between 1995 and 2050, the population of Japan and virtually all countries of Europe will most likely decline. In a number of cases, including Estonia, Bulgaria and Italy, countries would lose between one quarter and one third of their population. Population ageing will be pervasive, bringing the median age of population to historically unprecedented high levels. For instance, in Italy, the median age will rise from 41 years to, uh, in, in 2000 to 53 years in 2050. The potential support ratio, that is the number, i.e. the number of persons of working age, that's 15 to 64, per older person will often be halved, four or five from four or five to two. There's much more, but uh, let me just finish with just one of the report's major findings when, when referring to Europe. Population decline is inevitable in the absence of replacement migration. Fertility may rebound in the coming years, decades, but few believe that it will recover sufficiently in most countries to reach replacement level in the foreseeable future. Well, all that was in March 2000. But replacement migration has come, or has potentially come, to the rescue for many. For within a little over a year, of course, there was 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, uh, and then the Second Iraq War, Afghanistan, and the so-called Arab Spring, Syria, and now ISIS, Boko Haram, and uh, Al-Shabaab. And the result? Answer, a third category of migration, which we've been hearing about already, namely refugee migration, which can provide replacement population. Of course, refugees, or asylum seekers as they're called in the UK until their claims are accepted, uh, are the focus of the current issues regarding migration and immigration and the people Claire was wanting to help and was helping. And of course, the fact is Europe is experiencing the biggest refugee movement since World War II. Europe was expected to receive around 1 million asylum applications in 2015 and a similar amount 
this year, 2016, according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. However, and this is what people get so wrong, in economic uh, terms, refugee migration should not be a problem. Yes, initially it can be expensive. Refugees, refugees all need jobs and places to live in in their new countries. But economists argue it is a good thing economically long-term. Listen to the HSBC report. It is from their analyst Fabio Balboni and his team explaining why the immigration crisis is actually going to be a huge net positive for Europe. I quote, from an economic perspective, Europe needs more workers. It is well known that most parts of Europe have rapidly aging populations. This results in slower growth and thus tax receipts while simultaneously increasing government spending through pensions and healthcare. The Eurozone in particular is about to embark on this demographic challenge with a mountain of debt. The easiest way to support more pensioners is to have more taxpayers through, of course, replacement immigration. Now, that note came, by the way, um, just hours after the president of the World Bank also explained in a major new report how an influx of migrants will help drive the economy. Uh, for most of the evidence suggests that migrants will work hard and contribute more in taxes than they actually take out in social services. So economically... Refugee immigration is not the real problem uh, for Europe at national levels. Yes, local economic needs, as they affect individuals locally, have to be addressed through when you've got a surplus of uh, non-refugee or uh, migrant workers. But for European nations as a whole, there is an economic advantage at this time through refugee immigration. Just consider the latest figures. Europe has the lowest regional fatality rate, fatality rate in the whole world at 1.6. That's children per woman with population replacement being 2.1. Uh, it has not been fruitful or multiplying. So countries like Germany, Hungary, Italy, Portugal and Spain desperately need immigrants to keep their economies going. Germany needs actually over 500,000 per year such is their demographic deficit. And the UK, UK now is um, at 1.9. It's not so bad. But that is because many immigrant mothers have a higher fertility rate than mothers born in the UK. But if economically refugee immigration is not the problem, some suggest, socially its disruption cannot be ignored. And that is the really big issue. Nor is it because of race or ethnicity, or anything like that, as sadly uh, many inflammatory, uh, inflammatorily actually say, but because of religion or a person's worldview. Until this is faced, there will be no solution to the current problem. And Christians have to help people face this reality. Let me explain. In 2012, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, said this. Demography is the key factor. If you are not able to maintain yourself biologically, how do you expect to maintain yourself economically, politically and militarily? It's impossible. The answer of letting people from other countries come in, that could be an economic solution. But it's not a solution of your real sickness, that you are not able to maintain your own civilization. So, 
Is the razor wire around Hungary an adequate solution? Well, no, because Hungary is one of the really sick men of Europe with the sickness of a fertility rate of 1.34. However, Orban's analysis cannot be ignored, nor can you ignore the analysis of Jonathan Last in his study, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. In that, he argues for a liberal approach to immigration, but I quote, it should be coupled with a staunchly traditionalist view of integration. He then says this, America has been lucky in the way it has assimilated most of its immigrants. Europe, and France in particular, and this was written in 2013, uh, so before Charlie Hebdo, uh, the Bataclan attack, and Nice last Thursday. Uh, Europe, uh, and France in particular, has not. Europe, as we have known it for 15 centuries, is almost certain to fade away in the next 50 years replaced by a semi-hostile Islamic Ummah. All that will remain of what we traditionally know as Europe is the name. This change was not inevitable. It is a result of a policy choice made by adherents of a truly radical faith, multiculturalism. Now note two things. Uh, Multiculturalism, for those that don't know, is is certainly not like the church understands it, and knows where what we mean uh, is that uh, uh, whatever race or nation or background we come from, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And uh, that's the Keswick motto. And by the way, the good news is Clayton TV uh, broadcast live last night from Keswick uh, on uh, uh, Clayton TV uh, the entire uh, start. And it's uh, live, so tell your friends around the world that you can get Keswick live along with all the crowds in Keswick. Um, And that has, on the banner on the stage, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's not what is meant by multiculturalism. Multiculturalism, for those that don't know, is where no one faith is nationally privileged except the faith that no one faith should be nationally privileged. And secondly, those predictions of these sort of Uh, statisticians and demographers, of course, are if things stay the same and nothing is going to be different in a serious way. But then Jonathan Lars goes on, it's now only dawning on Europeans that their unwillingness to insist on standing for their own culture has been a terrible mistake. In 2011, the leaders of France, Germany, Great Britain and Germany all publicly acknowledged that multiculturalism has been a societal failure. So hence the new talk about British values. But unless these values are understood in a Christian context, they mean so little. For example, democracy can mean and does mean around the world 51% enslaving 49%. And you can see the Judgment Conference 2015 on British values also on the church website and Clay TV if you want more on that. But is the writer arguing for intolerance? No, but he is saying, I quote, tolerance need not be surrender. However, he fails, what he fails to say is that the heart of a culture is religion. So what is really important is not Britishness or Frenchness or Germanness or Chineseness or Indianness or Japaneseness or the unique culture of any nation. Yes, there is value in those differences, 
as the Bible even teaches, uh, and distinctions that the various nations can bring to human life. But what is vital is having Jesus Christ and his virtues and values at the center of your culture. The hard reality for Europe is that many Muslim asylum seekers, uh, are, that, that many um, uh, asylum seekers aren't, are not actually Muslim, they're Christians escaping persecution in Muslim countries. But many are Islamic, and because Muhammad was a warrior, their attitude to political force and violence is different to that of Christianity. And it has well been said that while Muhammad rode into Medina to conquer, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die on a cross. And his victory was not in battle, but in his glorious resurrection from the dead, leaving a tomb empty. So once the percentage of Muslims grows significantly, while most will be moderate and peaceful, there is to be expected a significant increase proportionately of Muslim extremists. However, the problems are not all on one side. For many Muslims, the problem is that Europe, to where they are migrating, is becoming aggressively secular and decadent. And they are seeing decadent secular extremists now in leadership positions, and this means Muslims having to assimilate to a godless postmodern secular extremism where all is permitted and nothing barred except rightly violence and paedophilia, but often, wrongly, Christian marital and sexual ethics. And mainstream Muslims cannot be expected to assimilate to such extreme secularism. So with those problems, we come to the challenge. And the challenge is to have both a warm heart and a cool head as these facts are faced uh, on migration and immigration. So regarding a warm heart, you need to have a Christ-like compassion for so many different sorts of people uh, caught up uh, in these issues, suffering in relation to these issues. For a start, just thinking about infertility and Europe needing replacement migration brings huge pain to many European women, for they too would just love to be part of the solution and mothers, but for various reasons they cannot be. And then when you talk of suffering people migrating, remember the thousands, indeed millions, of people who cannot migrate and would love to, but are now internally displaced persons, as we call them, IDPs. And there are millions of those in the South Sudan where those of us involved with AID only know too well. And then remember the millions of Christians living under persecuting regimes. Uh, we've been praying for them already, for, who for a range of reasons cannot even escape disaster areas to seek asylum or move around their countries. But what of the migrant in our midst? Well, the Bible is clear how to treat such an individual. Uh, the Bible, uh, the biblical name for uh, the immigrant is stranger or sojourner. That's the way it's translated. And that was someone permanently living in a country other than his or her country of birth. And because of the history of God's own people in their time in Egypt, sojourners were to, were to be well treated. And we heard in our Old Testament lesson, this is from Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. And uh, there were to be economic benefits for sojourners 
Look at Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, which says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And there was this special protection for the sojourners in the cities of refuge for the stranger and the sojourners, we're told. This is Numbers 35, 15. Also oppressing the sojourner, uh, the fatherless or the widow, would especially incur God's judgment, Jeremiah. Uh, we, t- we learn from Jeremiah 7, verse 6. However, the sojourner was not free to ignore all Jewish restraints. For example, he or she too had to avoid, for example, work on the Sabbath and immorality and idolatry and blasphemy. What about the New Testament? Well, Jesus is clear. He talks about the stranger in his parable of the sheep and the goats. He says that you are to welcome uh, himself in the person of a stranger. When that person is one of the least of these my brothers, that is to say one of Jesus' followers. That's Matthew 25 and 33 following. Otherwise, it will incur God's judgment, fearful judgment. And the Christian tradition has extended that care uh, for the stranger to everyone, while especially caring for Christian believers. Paul said, Galatians 6 verse 10, do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So as Claire was doing as a nurse in Lesbos, she helped anyone and everyone uh, as she could uh, who was in need. And this is, of course, all part of fulfilling that uh, great commandment of our Lord, which he got uh, uh, from, uh, and he repeated from Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But... uh, To fulfill that command, the previous verse is important. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And of course, the greatest love, uh, in one sense, is to reason with and share with those who do not know Jesus Christ. Uh, That and that, as we sang in... uh, our song earlier, Jesus is the only true hope of the nations. And uh, how it is important that uh, as Christians we witness and help the Lord grow his church uh, and for us, uh, not least in Tyneside. I must conclude, I do simply with a comment from Canon J. John, I've quoted it before. Um, He said, we need to add to this discussion on migration and immigration for eyes. They are to, one, be involved as we are able, two, to be intelligent in our analysis of the problems, three, have integrity in being honest and facing uncomfortable facts, and four, be interceding, be praying. So let's pray now. In a moment we're going to be... uh, singing a great hymn. Church of God, elect and glorious, holy nation, chosen race, called as God's own special people, royal peace and er- priests and heirs of grace. Know the purpose of your calling. Show to all his mighty deeds. Tell of love which knows no limits, grace which meets all human needs.
So we pray, Heavenly Father, help us all to know the purpose of our calling and our own individual callings as we're able to show and as we're able, help us to show um, to all uh, your great deeds and not least in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will tell them of your love through him and uh, of the grace, your grace, which meets all human needs. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.